0: This morning's sermon comes from Acts 24, 1 through 27. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying... Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him and about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hoping God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crown or or tumult. (laughs) But Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood over the council, other than, the, other than this one thing that I have cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be preventing from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And when he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming of the judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, "'Go away for the present.'" When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix kept Paul in prison.
1: A very wise and accomplished counselor was meeting with a client named George who worked in the rubber industry. And at their first counseling session, George looked at this counselor and said, I've got to get out of the rubber industry. So the counselor said, okay, gave him some homework to accomplish over the week before the next session. And he came back the next week to their next session and he hadn't done a lick of the homework. So this counselor, very wise, very discerning, asked him, what will happen if you don't get out of the rubber industry? And he looked at her and he said, my wife will divorce me. And she said to him, do you want your wife to divorce you? And he smiled and nodded, yes. It's at that point that she knew that he would never leave his job until it gave him what he wanted, which was a divorce with his wife taking the initiative and the guilt upon herself. Agendas, hidden agendas that are below the surface, we're all familiar with them. Whether you like it or not, agendas are what determine whether you say yes or no to something. Agendas are why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so offensive. We see in Acts 24 that the gospel offends, deeply offends, two very different kind of people. It offends the Jews. They were very religious. And it offended the Roman governor who was very irreligious. And the reason it offended both of them is because both had agendas. Why? Who does the gospel offend and why? First, It offends those with an identity agenda. By now, as we've been tracking here in Acts, the Jews have made it clear they are not going to let go of Paul. They are committed to prosecuting him. If you go back to Acts 23, uh, the dissension got so heavy and the violence that the, the Roman tribune had to rescue Paul out of their hands so they wouldn't kill him puts him in the barracks, guards him in the barracks, and then the Jews plot a plan to murder him. When that news gets to the Roman Tribune that they're about to murder Paul, he quickly transports Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea. I mean, this is beginning to take on the uh, characteristics of a witness protection program, a very odd one at that. Jesus is a, or Paul is a witness of Jesus' death and resurrection, and the Romans at this point are rescuing him and protecting him from the Jews. So Paul arrives in Caesarea, and this is where we arrive in Acts 24. The Jews arrive five days later to prosecute Paul. Verse one, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, They laid before the governor their case against Paul. Notice the high priest and elder didn't come alone. They brought a lawyer. That's who Tertullus was that day. That was basically a lawyer. They brought the big guns to win the case. Now, what were the charges that were brought against Paul? There were were three charges. First charge, verse five. For we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, the word plague. They're they're basically saying Paul is analogous to a contagious disease or a plague that is spreading the sickness of dissension, the sickness of rebellion throughout the land. That's the first charge. Second charge, verse five, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now Nazarene, that was a word used to describe Jesus because he was from Nazareth, And Nazarene's was a word that described the followers of Christ. Notice they call it a sect. That's a word that communicates heresy. They're saying Paul is whipping up dangerous and troublesome heresy. That's the second charge. Third charge, verse six. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. They charged Paul with trying to desecrate The temple. Tertullus finishes his prosecution. And note verse 9: all the Jews affirmed it and said, Yes, Paul has done all of this. Now, here's the problem: every one of those charges was false. Not one of those charges was true. And so Paul stands up and he begins to defend his case and he points to each charge and says, "It's, It's false. To the, to the charge that he was a troublemaker, stirring up dissension and rebellion. Paul says in verses 11 and 12, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. If you do the math, he spent one day in prison in Jerusalem. He spent five days in prison in Caesarea. That leaves six days where he could be stirring up trouble. He wasn't doing it. It was a false accusation. To the charge that he was the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Paul says in verses 14 to 15, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, that was a description of Christianity in the early years, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul was basically saying following Jesus is not a deviation from Judaism, which would be the definition of a sect, something that deviates from what's true. Paul says, no, it's actually true Judaism. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of Judaism. I worship the God of Israel just like they do. This is legal under Roman law. This charge is false. And to the last charge that he desecrated the temple, verses 17 and 18. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Paul explains why he came to Jerusalem. It wasn't to destroy or desecrate the temple. It was actually an errand of mercy. He had collected funds from the Gentile churches. He was coming to bless the Jerusalem church, to come bring money and help to the Jerusalem church. And then when they found him in the temple, if you remember back a couple chapters, he was going through this purification ceremony. The dissension that, was, that rose up was due to Jews that were coming from Asia and causing it. And Paul says, they're not even here to, to, to testify in this case. All right, so all of that raises one big question. Why are the Jews so committed to prosecuting Paul? Paul. And getting rid of Paul. Why so much anger? Why so much violence? I mean, this is kind of like a dog on a bone. They will not let go. They're chasing Paul down. You have to ask, why? It's a big deal. Just let it go. Why are they so committed to this? Well, notice that in this passage, Paul does confess one thing. And you're going to see that what he confesses is what he has been confessing. This is the issue. Verse 21, Paul says, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, here's his one confession. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. The only crime that Paul confessed to was the resurrection of the dead, which is no crime at all. Ultimately, the Jews weren't prosecuting Paul they were continuing their prosecution of Jesus Christ. They thought they had killed him and gotten rid of him. And now here's this man, Paul, going around saying he's alive, and they didn't want to hear it. So this raises the bigger and the ultimate question, why did they hate Jesus so much? Why did they hate Jesus Why did they want him gone? The simple answer is because Jesus didn't give them what they wanted. That's the simple answer. Jesus didn't give them what they wanted, they wanted a political Messiah. They wanted a Messiah who would come in and overthrow the Romans and establish their kingdom so that they could have an identity, so that they could have a name amongst the nations. This identity crisis among God's people is nothing new. It plagued their history. Think back to the Tower of Babel. Why did God's people build the Tower of Babel? It was to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be somebody. They needed to create an identity. Why did the Israelites, God's people, ask for a king? Because they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to be a nation with a name in the world. They wanted to be somebody. This identity crisis followed God's people throughout history, and you'll see it follows us today. They wanted an identity, a specific political identity, a national identity, and Jesus wouldn't do that. And they didn't like it. So they killed him. And then when Paul's going around saying he's alive, they couldn't stand it. They couldn't stand it. They had an agenda, and it's because of their agenda That agenda is what caused them to reject Christ. He didn't give them what they want. He didn't meet their agenda. And when he didn't meet their agenda, they said, we're done with this man. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive to those with an agenda. Think about Frank Capra's classic movie, It's a Wonderful Life. In that movie, George Bailey, says to his wife, Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and the next year and the year after that. I'm going to leave this little town far behind and I'm going to go see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm coming back here and I'll go to college and see what they know and then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers 100 stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. As it turns out, George was wrong. He didn't know what he was doing tomorrow, the next day, the next year, or the year after. In fact, what George was supposed to do was what he had done the day before. And he didn't like that. God's plan for him was far too ordinary, far too ordinary, far too commonplace. It's the last thing that he wanted to do. Maybe your agenda for your life is to do great things. Maybe just great things in general, or if you are a follower of Christ, maybe your agenda is to do great things for Christ. And yet God's plan for you is far more commonplace and far more ordinary than you would like to hear. Because it may be that your agenda to do great things, noble things, grand things for the world, grand things for God, may not be as much about God, but more about you creating an identity for yourself. You making yourself something or somebody. Maybe God's agenda for you seems way too commonplace and way too ordinary. You don't like that and it's actually mildly offensive. I realize what I'm about to say may be hard to wrap your head around because it sounds so counterintuitive. But your agenda to do great things for God may be hindering your ability to know Christ intimately and to rest and rejoice in him. Now, this agenda, this identity agenda, doesn't just play out on an individual level. It plays out on a communal level, on a church level. There was an article in Christianity today, a while back, while back. Sinclair Ferguson, he's an author and a pastor, was noting that, that evangelical churches can get so wrapped around uh, an issue or a concern of the day that at the end of the day, at best is of secondary importance. But churches can get wrapped around an agenda or an issue. And he says this, conferences, seminars, and books on a whole series of vital concerns have dominated center stage and determined the agenda in many churches and for many individual Christians But strikingly absent has been concentration on God himself. Indeed, on the rare occasions when this absence has not been the case, we have sat up to take notice as though something out of the ordinary were being said. Why do these agendas exist in a a communal level, a church level, a group level? Sometimes it's just outright to make a name. I think the motive is just to make a name, establish an identity that's different than everyone else. But a lot of times, agendas develop over time when something starts out with a pure motive to take the gospel to a broken part of the culture. But eventually, that good work instead of Christ can become an agenda that establishes the identity of the church or the community or the group. And when it gets to that point, an agenda has become so ingrained, the true and pure gospel of Jesus Christ can be offensive, if not quite offensive, maybe just a yawn. Because an agenda has taken center stage. Why does the gospel offend those with an identity agenda? Because when you turn to Jesus Christ, he strips you of the name that you've been trying to work at and get through the world that is empty and fleeting. He strips you of that name, but then he gives you a name based on what he's done. Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, says this well. We either get our name, our defining essence, security, worth, and uniqueness from what God has done for us and in us, or we make a name through what we can do for ourselves the gospel is offensive because it strips you of the name or the identity that you've been trying to work for in the world. But at the same time, it's liberating because it gives you a name that is not temporary or empty or fleeting. It gives you a name and identity that endures forever. So it's both offensive and liberating at the very same time around this agenda of identity. Who does the gospel offend and why? First, those with an identity agenda, but second, the gospel offends those with a comfort agenda. We arrive at the Roman governor now, Felix, in this story. After the case was presented, Felix basically dismisses the case. He says, ah, leave. It's done. I'm dismissing it. When the the Roman Tribune gets here, We'll pick it back up. He, he, basically, it was just to push it off. I'm not interested. This is being dismissed. He knew Paul was innocent. I knew Paul was innocent. Yeah, what we learn about Felix is that he was a corrupt governor, really corrupt governor, hated by the Jews. Uh, Drusilla was his third wife. When he married Drusilla, she was a teenager who was married to another king. And Felix lusted after her, and convinced her to divorce that king and marry him. Now, what's interesting, pretty corrupt man. What's interesting, though, in verse 24, or verse 22, it says that he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Now, the way, as I said, was the early name for Christianity. Felix had some working knowledge of Christianity. Christianity. And so after he dismisses the case, he and his wife pull Paul in. They send for Paul to have a conversation with Paul. And no surprise, Paul shares with Felix about faith in Jesus Christ. He shares the gospel with Felix. Now, how does Felix respond? Verse 25, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control, now just remember who Felix is. I gave you some data on him. As Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, "Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you." That word "alarmed" actually means "terrified." Felix was terrified. This had gotten a little too personal. He had general understanding of the religion of Christianity. But Paul wasn't speaking in generals. Paul was speaking about very detailed, personal, uh, ethical implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it got too personal for Felix. And he said, I can't take anymore. But why was he terrified? I mean, he's terrified, but not terrified enough to repent. Why not? Well, Felix, and we're gonna see here, was a man who was committed to his own comfort in many ways. I've already shared. The first way we see that is he stole a king's wife for his own comfort. Now, he stole someone else's wife for his own comfort. But then, this is, you say, I don't get it. It says that he kept calling Paul back for conversation. He dismissed him. But then it says, but then he would keep calling Paul back in for conversation. Why? Verse 26. At the same time, he had hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. So Paul shares the gospel with him. He gets terrified and says, out of here. But then he keeps bringing him back. Why? It says he wants money. Now, I don't. Missionaries don't have money, but I would imagine Felix thought, well, Paul said he brought money from the Gentile churches to give to the Jerusalem church. Maybe there's more in this coffer and I'm gonna try to bribe him out of it, right? So, so now you see Felix seeking Paul, seeking after Paul for money, for his own comfort. And then it happens again. You see at the end of the passage, we learn that Felix seeks to protect himself rather than to do justice. Verse 27, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Rather than to do the right thing, Paul was innocent. Felix knew he was innocent. Rather than to do the right thing, he left him in prison for two years to make the Jews happy. So Felix was committed to practicing injustice for his own comfort. The reason why Felix got terrified at the gospel message but not enough to repent is because he had an agenda and his agenda of comfort ruled everything and that meant rejection of Christ. Martin Hughes, an atheist blogger who left Christianity doesn't miss believing in God or hell, but he does miss heaven. And this is really intriguing. Listen to what this atheist blogger says about heaven. He says, I wish that there was one to go to, and that's the truth. Now, he acknowledges, right out, he acknowledges that's not atheistically correct to say that, but he acknowledges, he wishes there was one. Where he could go to. He goes on to say, he would hope in this heaven of his own making to understand everything. And then he says, and he hopes in his own version of heaven that there would be deep, rich happiness that feels like mom's sweet potato pie on Thanksgiving. Now that's comfort. That's comfort. What's interesting here is you have an atheist who has rejected Christ but embraced comfort and the desire for it. Now contrast that with Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a Russian novelist who was very outspoken about communism. And because of his outspokenness about communism, he got landed, he got sent into a Soviet labor camp. He was exiled to a Soviet labor camp. And his response to exile was to bless it. And the reason he blessed it is because he discovered something in this exile in Soviet labor camp. This is what he said. The meaning of earthly existence lies not as we have grown used to thinking and prospering prospering, comfort, but in the development of the soul. So you have an atheist that rejects Christ but embraces comfort, which is why he wants there to be a heaven. And then here you have a person that embraces Christ but rejects comfort. The gospel of Jesus Christ offends those with a comfort agenda. Why? Why is it offensive? Because when you turn to Christ, he strips you of the comfort that you have been seeking in the world, which is empty and fleeting. But it's liberating. It's liberating when you realize that the comfort that he gives is not an earthly comfort, but a soul comfort, you will find rest, comfort for your soul. Earthly comfort, new heavens and new earthly comfort comes one day, that's when Christ returns, but not now. This is why the, you know, Solzhenitsyn talks about the, the prospering, that we, we are just have this natural bent towards prospering, and then we come to Christ with that agenda to prosper. And a lot of times, if you come to Christ with an agenda to prosper, you're gonna be disappointed quickly. But that's why the, the prosperity gospel is so toxic and so deadly. The prosperity gospel on the surface, it looks very, uh, it, it looks like the gospel, kind of sounds like the gospel, but when you dig below the surface, it's, it's delivering a message that is so far from the message of Christ. The prosperity gospel says, turn to Christ and you will be blessed. Blessed. In a, in a variety of ways. You may be blessed with wealth. Uh, you may be blessed with uh, health. You may be blessed with some, some sort of comfort. It's turn to Christ and be earthly comforted. That's not the message of the gospel. And that's why the prosperity gospel is so toxic. It's so deadly because it sets people up for this massive disappointment when the comforts are taken away and when suffering Hits. The message of the gospel is turn to Christ and find comfort for your soul. Not necessarily earthly comfort. That day's coming when Christ returns, but not necessarily now. The gospel is offensive to those with a comfort agenda. Why? Because when you turn to Christ, He strips you of the type of comfort you've been seeking in the world. But at the same time, it's offensive because it's offensive. When you've been seeking comfort, same thing with identity. If you've been searching for an identity, trying to make a name for yourself in the world, working really, really hard, you turn to Christ and that's stripped from you. Or you've been working really hard to set up a life that just has uh, tons of comfort layers and you turn to Christ and you realize that gets stripped that type of comfort, but he delivers, and this is where it's liberating. He delivers rest for the soul, comfort for the soul, with the promise that one day he's going to return. And the new heavens, new earthly comfort will be part of that when he returns. The gospel is both offensive and liberating at the same time. It's offensive to those with an identity agenda, a comfort agenda, but it's liberating. Because the identity that Jesus gives you and the comfort Jesus gives you is far deeper, far greater, far more enduring than any identity or or comfort that you would seek in this world. He gives you an identity and he gives you comfort that is immune to circumstances. That's why it's liberating. You're no longer a slave to circumstances. You're no longer a slave to the up and down jerks of a broken world that take you back and forth, back and forth. The gospel is both offensive and liberating. To those of you who are investigating Christianity, maybe you've been investigating Christianity for years. What agenda is keeping you from Christ? What agenda, whether it's a comfort agenda, an identity agenda, or something else, some other agenda, what agenda is keeping you from coming to Christ? And what I want you to note here is in this passage, two very different types of people that had an agenda that kept them from Christ, right? You had the religious people, the Jews, and then you had the Roman governor who was irreligious, even though he had a knowledge of Christianity not a religious person. So this agenda is not just for people outside the church. This agenda happens whether you're religious or irreligious, and in both categories, an agenda keeps you from Christ because Christ doesn't meet your agenda as you would think it should be met in this world. He meets you, but he gives you a far deeper and greater identity and comfort than this world can give. So for those of you that are investigating Christianity, ask yourself that question. What keeps me from coming to Christ? What's the agenda that keeps me from bowing the knee to Christ? For those of you who have turned to Christ, those of you who have faith in Jesus Christ, what agenda keeps you from knowing Christ intimately? And resting and rejoicing in him. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you the agendas we have. Some of them we know, some of them we don't. Father, if there is a a hidden or a deep agenda in our hearts that we're unaware of, we ask by your Holy Spirit that that, that you would reveal that to us. Father, that we would see that the, the identity or the comfort that we are seeking in this world, that we are seeking with our own hands is that you would convince us that it is so fleeting, so temporary, so empty, that you by your spirit would turn our hearts to Christ where we receive, we don't go get, but we receive a name. We receive an identity that's immune to circumstances. We receive a comfort that is far deeper than any earthly comfort that would be offered. Father, thank you for this meal, for this Lord's Supper that we are about to enjoy. Pray that it would nourish us that it would be both offensive and liberating, that we would bring our our agendas before you and confess them, and that we would be liberated to find our identity and our comfort in Jesus Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen.